Hello and welcome to Hollywood, the podcast that explores the lives of history's greatest storytellers. I'm your host, Key Whiskey, and this is the fifth chapter in our ongoing series called Writers Under the Influence, featuring authors whose lives and careers are, in the popular imagination, entangled with their relationships to substances. See this cute little vial here? That's crack, rock cocaine. Not only are barbiturates dangerous to his nervous system, but they destroy the inner resources. This is your brain on drugs. But the grim specters of heroin, marijuana, and cocaine... Oh, devil ether. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. In an alarming parallel to today's opioid epidemic, amphetamines were once widely and legally prescribed. In 1929, while searching for an alternative to ephedrine, a medication that works to open and clear the airways, American biochemist Gordon Ailes stumbled upon the euphoric effects of a chemical compound soon to be known as amphetamine. It's important to note Ailes didn't invent the drug. That credit goes to a Romanian chemist named Lazar Edelanu, who unintentionally synthesized the first amphetamine in 1887, only to deem it pharmaceutically useless and abandon the research in favour of other projects. Forty years later, Ailes picked up from where Edelanu left off and saw immediate potential in amphetamine. Sure, it didn't cure anything, but it did make you feel good. And it actually worked as a decongestant. Ailes had succeeded in finding a synthetic and far more accessible alternative to ephedrine a medication made from the hard-to-source ephedra plant. In a whip-smart business move, he patented amphetamine's use as medicine, then approached a Philadelphia pharmaceutical firm called Smith, Klein and French, SKF, and proposed a partnership. SKF were a good fit for Ailes. They already produced one amphetamine product, an over-the-counter inhalant called Benzedrine, made to clear out respiratory passages. Unlike the modern asthma inhaler, made as a pressurized canister filled with medicine, Benzedrine was simply a capped tube containing a cotton strip soaked in over 300 milligrams of amphetamine oil. It didn't take long for users to figure out they could break open the canister and consume the strip directly to achieve a heart-racing, mind-bending, electrifying high. Ailes and SKF struck a deal. The drug company agreed to provide royalty payments, a salary, and a lab space in return for exclusive rights over anything the young chemist produced. The collaboration soon bore fruit. In the late 1930s, Ailes presented SKF with his new benzedrine sulfate pills, and the American Medical Association gave the go-ahead to commence advertising. pills, as they came to be called, were recommended for a wide variety of medical conditions, including sleep disorders, chronic pain, low blood pressure, low libido, weight loss, and depression. Students were among the first to get hooked on them after realizing that the pills helped them stay awake and study for longer periods. In fact, SKF initially considered marketing them as a study aid. But then World War II came about, and the drug, 
was literally weaponized. Both the American and British military supplied troops with amphetamines in their emergency kits to help them overcome the symptoms of fatigue and shell shock, and to boost morale and keep up the fighting spirit. One of the SKF ad slogans read, quote, For men in combat, when the going gets tough. Post-war, the men returned home to their careers and women were forced back into the domestic sphere. Housewives popped Benzedrine like candy to cope with the mundane tasks of their everyday lives, or to lose weight, while their husbands took it to cope with PTSD or extend their working hours. Before long, amphetamines spilled out of the middle-class suburbs and into city streets and the underground subcultures. The drug took on new street names, Bennies, Black Beauties, Uppers, Whiz, Hearts, Marathons and Speed. The beatniks in particular embraced amphetamines and their effects. It was the beats who popularized the harmless sounding slang term bennies for benzedrine pills, and in return, speed defined the beats. It gave them energy, a rush of thought and feeling, and made them feel like intellectual giants. It deranged their senses and showed them a new way to experience the world. The stream of consciousness poetry, the shambolic structures, the rhythmic pulse of sentences, all of this stemmed from the blossoming electricity of speed. Even today in 2020, we still don't have a full understanding of exactly how amphetamines affect the brain, but there are some aspects of its pharmacology that are well established. We know the stimulant has an effect on dopamine, the brain's natural pleasure chemical, responsible for your mood. Amphetamine not only blocks the reuptake of dopamine, but stimulates its release, thus triggering a massive and powerful surge of happy hormones. The brain's natural reward system is compromised, but your brain likes it a lot. An amphetamine high can be pleasant or unpleasant depending on a number of factors, including how much a user takes and a user's general mental health and well-being. A good high usually involves euphoria, increased confidence and motivation, a sense of power and superiority, increased libido, extreme alertness, general talkativeness, and abrupt shifts in thought and speech. A bad high can involve nervousness, anxiety, panic, paranoia, aggression, insomnia, hallucinations, and depression. Speed is often referred to as the 20th century's most egalitarian drug, because it didn't discriminate between social classes. Everyone from the twitching junkie on the street to President JFK in the Oval Office fell for the allure of amphetamines. Thanks to aggressive marketing and fierce commercial competition, stimulants had become so normalized and socially acceptable during the 40s, 50s, and 60s that if you lived in America around that time, there's a good chance amphetamines were part of your everyday life. In this respect, you might say the two authors featured in today's episode were casualties of their time and culture. They were introduced to amphetamines when the medical reputation of the drug was still credible, before the dangers of the drug were fully known. The authors used amphetamines to turn themselves into lean, mean writing machines. Their most famous novels were pumped out in frenzied, drug fueled booze-soaked writing marathons that lasted weeks. They lived their lives on the edge so falling was inevitable. They died at middle age, 
before fully witnessing the immense, lasting influence their work and their personas were to have on popular culture. This episode is about Jack Kerouac and Philip K. Dick. Jack Kerouac was born in the New England mill city of Lowell, Massachusetts on 12th of March, 1922. His birth name was Jean-Louis Labrie de Kerouac. His parents were a couple of middle-class French Canadians called Leo and Gabrielle, who were born in Quebec and later migrated south to Lowell because it boasted a large French-Canadian community. Leo owned a printing shop downtown called Spotlight Print, and Gabrielle was a homemaker. As a boy, Jack only spoke and understood French, which made it hard for him to make friends with the English-speaking kids in his neighborhood. He spent most his time with his siblings, an older sister named Carolyn, also known as Nin, and an older brother named Gerard. Gerard was chronically ill and suffered from rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever is an inflammatory disease that causes painful and swollen joints, fatigue, uncontrollable twitches, and a red, splotchy rash all over the body. Gerard didn't go to school and rarely left his bed. His family fussed over him round the clock. It was a cruel twist of nature. Gerard was the older brother by six years, but he was small and frail in comparison to his younger brother Jack, who was strong and muscular. After two years of agony, Gerard passed away at nine years old, but his ghost hung over the grieving family like a dead weight. Each family member reacted in different ways. Four-year-old Jack had nightmares as his young mind struggled to process the idea of death and suffering. Leo, the father, chain-smoked cigars, drank more regularly than usual, and recklessly gambled the family money on horse racing. Gabrielle, the mother, worshipped her dead son, holding him up as a child saint, an impossible model of goodness that Jack tried to emulate. And try he did. Jack took it upon himself to fill the gap in his mother's life that Gerard left behind. He became a mummy's boy, allowing her to coddle him and lapping up all her attention in exchange for his affection and dependence. The two took to sharing a bed. Jack showed an interest in the arts from a young age, one of his father's print shop clients was the local theatre. Leo Kerouac printed the theatre programs with the showtimes. One of the perks of the deal was that Jack and Nin didn't have to pay admission to get in. As often as they could, they went to watch live vaudeville shows, like the Marx Brothers and the finest films Hollywood had to offer, like those starring Charlie Chaplin. Jack also loved to read comics. Popeye was one of his favourites, and at age eight, he began drawing his own comic strips. You might say this was where his literary career began. At his mother's insistence, Jack attended a private Catholic institution called St. Louis's Parochial School, where some lessons were practiced in French, but English was encouraged as a first language. Jack had no choice but to learn English as quickly as possible in order to keep up with the rest of his class. One of his earliest school memories was learning to say door instead of port. Despite his dedication, it wouldn't be until his late teens when he truly felt confident speaking English. Catholicism, on the other hand, he found easy to understand. Religion was part of the school curriculum, taught alongside maths and science and history. Jack happily took part. He embraced his Catholic faith with open arms. Church was like a second home to him, after his first communion, Jack had even worked as an altar boy. 
This made his devout mother immensely proud. Many biographers suppose she is the reason why he remained so loyal to his Catholic roots throughout the rest of his life, to the astonishment of many of his later readers. Although Jack entertained the idea of becoming an author and writing the next great American novel, it was in sports that Jack saw his future. Having formed teams with his school friends, Jack began to recognize his skills in running, baseball, and especially football. In 1936, when Jack was 14, a flood ravaged the town. Spotlight print, Leo Kerouac's shop, was only partly damaged, but his finances were in such a dire state, due to his gambling debts and the Great Depression, that Leo couldn't afford to resurrect the business. Gabrielle was forced to return to work, taking up a gig at a local shoe factory. Nevertheless, the family struggled to make ends meet. The situation was desperate. Teenage Jack realized the only way he was going to make something of himself was to go to college. And the only way he was going to get to college was through a football scholarship. Jack played running back on Lowell High School's football team, the Red Raiders. Although quite small for a footballer, standing 5 foot 7 and weighing 150 pounds, Jack had powerful legs and could run fast. He helped lead his team to victory often scoring heroic touchdowns in the final minutes of the game. His prowess on the field turned him into a Friday Night Lights level celebrity in town. Jack later looked back on this time fondly. He said, quote, There is nothing like being a football star, not even publishing your first novel. Jack had everything going for him. He was cool, talented, macho, and devastatingly handsome. This last bit isn't an exaggeration. Although just a teenager, Jack's face had already chiseled out and he looked like a young, dark-haired Daniel Craig. At 16, Jack had his pick of girls, but there was only one he fell in love with. Mary Carney was a stunning, red-headed Irish girl Jack met at a dance. Classmates nicknamed her Stretch because she was tall and slim. Mary didn't intellectually challenge Jack, she dropped out of her sophomore year in high school to help her mother around the house, but Jack liked her warm and motherly nature. Over the next several months, the teenage sweethearts would meet under the clock that hung over Lowell High School's entrance and go on dates about town, or head back to Mary's house, where they engaged in marathon makeout sessions until their muscles cramped and their lips cracked and bled. Jack always wanted to go further, but Mary was a good girl and held tight to her virginity. It didn't take long for the lovers to realize they had very different visions for the future. Mary wanted to stay in town, marry, and raise children, while Jack dreamt of leaving Lowell behind and becoming a professional athlete. By his senior year in 1938, Jack was on the radar of many scouts from prestigious colleges across the East Coast. But it was his winning touchdown in a 1938 Thanksgiving Day grudge match against a rival high school that ultimately won them over. In front of a record crowd of 14,000 people and with seconds left on the clock, Jack caught a pass just inches from the ground and plowed into the end zone. This single touchdown generated scholarship offers from Boston College in his home state of Massachusetts, Notre Dame in Indiana, and Columbia University in New York. There was no contest. Columbia was an Ivy League institution and it was located in the most exciting city in the country. 
Jack graduated high school secure in the knowledge he was headed for bigger and better things. Part of the Columbia deal required Jack first refine his education at a fancy college preparatory school called Horace Mann in the Bronx. So in the fall of 1939, 17-year-old Jack, recently single after breaking it off with Mary, went to live with some relatives in Brooklyn. Each weekday, he'd make a daily trip of two and a half hours by subway, each way to and from school. He passed the time on the subway doing homework and reading novels by Thomas Wolfe, Jack London, William Soroyan, and Henry David Thoreau. Jack was one of only a few sports scholarship students who received free tuition in exchange for playing on the football team. The fee-paying students were the children of wealthy families, mostly Jewish, and while Jack rode the rattling, smelly subway each morning, the other students arrived to school in chauffeur-driven limousines, carrying delicious packed lunches prepared by the family cook. Despite his brooding shyness and the obvious class differences, Jack made lots of friends. He began hanging out with the sons of Wall Street bankers and financiers, who showed him around New York and introduced him to the jazz scene. Bebop, a new fast style of jazz, was only just emerging, and soon to be legendary musicians like Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, and Dizzy Gillespie jammed regularly in the bars across Greenwich Village in Harlem. Jack started reporting on the New York jazz music scene for the school's newspaper, interviewing such famous musicians as Count Basie and Glenn Miller. He also contributed short stories to the school's literary magazine, the Horace Mann Quarterly. It was during his year at Horace that Jack first took writing seriously. Each weekend, Jack seized the opportunity to explore the city and the limitless experiences it had to offer. He'd watch French films in Times Square, visit museums and galleries, stroll around Central Park, and people watch through cafe windows. He was particularly interested in observing the fringe dwellers, the tramps and sex workers and junkies who loitered on street corners and huddled under bridges. One fall day, he pulled all his savings and lost his virginity to an Italian sex worker, a memory he later recalled fondly. Jack graduated from Horace Mann in June 1940, but since he couldn't afford the requisite formal white suit, he listened in on the ceremony from a distance, stretched out on a patch of lawn on a hill near the gym, flicking through a book of poetry by Walt Whitman. After all that build-up, Jack's sporting career at Columbia was anticlimactic. He expected to be the hero-worshipped football star he was back in high school and at Horace Mann. Rather, competition was fierce. Jack quickly realised he was no longer the best player on the field, and he didn't like it one bit. He spent more time on the bench than in the game. In the Columbia Freshman Squad's second match of the season against St. Benedict's, a New Jersey prep school, Jack was given a chance to get off the bench, only to twist his leg in a low tackle. He heard a snap and limped to the sideline. The coach, Lou Little, was skeptical of the injury and forced Jack to continue practice over the next week. Jack limped through training, hating Little for accusing him of malingering. But by the next game against Princeton, he was in too much pain to participate. He visited a doctor and an x-ray confirmed he had a cracked tibia. Jack took the injury in his stride, 
With two crutches under his armpits and his leg in a cast, he hobbled over to the Lion's Den, a restaurant on the Columbia University campus, sat in front of the fire, read books, and ordered steak dinners and ice cream desserts. He charged the lot to the athletics department. His studies received a little more attention now that football wasn't a distraction, but his grades were erratic. He ranged from A's in literature classes to outright fails in science. When the 1941 football season began, Jack, now a sophomore, was freshly healed and ready to play. With most of the juniors and seniors leaving Columbia to fight in the war, Jack's chances at being a starter skyrocketed. But even with a depleted roster, Lou Little excluded Jack from the starting lineup. Jack believed Little snubbed him deliberately and the two fought bitterly. Their relationship deteriorated into open and mutual hostility. That was it for Jack. He dropped out of Columbia altogether and returned home where he found a job as a sports reporter for the Lowell Sun newspaper. This was the first of several odd jobs he'd experiment with over the next year, as he skipped through states and tried to decide what to do with his life. He pumped gas in Hartford, Connecticut, and worked construction in Washington, D.C., Virginia. In the summer of 1942, 20-year-old Jack signed up for the Merchant Marines and shipped out for Greenland aboard the U.S. Army transport ship the Dorchester. Although the attack on Pearl Harbor had occurred just six months prior, and America had officially entered the war, Jack's reasons for going to sea were more personal than patriotic. In his journal, he wrote, quote, My mother is very worried over my having joined the Merchant Marine, but I need money for college. I need adventure. I want to study more of the earth, not out of books, but from direct experience. Perhaps the Marines had been a little too much experience for Jack. He quit after just three months and returned home. It turned out to be a lucky decision. A short time later, the Dorchester was torpedoed by a German U-boat and more than 600 crew members died. Jack decided to return to Columbia after Lou Little sent a groveling telegram begging him to come back and play for the team. Jack agreed, hoping it would mean a fresh start but before long, Jack and Little fell into their old quarrelling ways. Jack wound up back on the bench instead of on the field, and the classes bored him. After just one month back, he again dropped out of Columbia and traded study for the sea. In December 1942, Jack enlisted in the US Naval Reserve, and in February 1943, he was sent to the Naval Training Station in Rhode Island. There is this great enlistment photograph taken right around Jack's 21st birthday. It sort of looks like a mugshot because of the height scale backdrop behind him. Jack's wearing a dark naval pea coat. He has a crew cut, his ears are sticking out, and he's looking right down the lens of the camera. His eyes are beautiful but vacant, almost as if he's already lost interest in being there. And that might not have been far from the truth. Jack lasted all of 10 days in boot camp. He'd visited the infirmary on several occasions complaining of headaches and asking for aspirin, and the authorities took note. He also refused to obey orders given by his superiors and bucked against the rigid schedule. One day, during a drill, he threw down his gun, told everyone to go to hell, then walked out and went to the base library to read. 
A couple hours later, he was found, apprehended, and dragged to the sickbay, where he was locked up and put under observation. According to files released by the government in 2005, naval doctors determined Jack mentally unfit for service. They noted he was, quote, restless, apathetic, seclusive, and ill-suited to military life. He was sent to the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, and honorably discharged after 67 days. In September 1943, Jack returned to New York and began crashing at the Upper West Side apartment of Edie Parker and Joan Volmer. We touched on Joan Volmer, who married William S. Burroughs, in a previous episode. Edie was Jack's girlfriend and future first wife. The two had originally met at Columbia, where Edie was an art student. She came from a wealthy Michigan family, but preferred the bohemian life in Manhattan. She was glamorous, bird-like in a way, and sort of resembled Hollywood movie star Barbara Stanwyck, especially when she threw on a pair of high heels and a tight sweater. Men fell all over themselves to light her cigarette if Jack wasn't around to do it. It was through Edie that Jack met teenaged Lucian Carr. When Edie first pointed Lucian out from across the room, Jack thought to himself, quote, Looks to me like a mischievous little prick. But Jack could see the appeal. Lucian was, like Jack, a bit of a larrikin. They went out on the town for boozy all-nighters, exploring the city, stirring up trouble, and drunkenly ranting to each other about bourgeois culture and pure creative expression. Once, Lucian put Jack in an empty barrel and rolled him down the streets of Upper Broadway. On another occasion, they sat wasted in a puddle during a rainstorm, singing at the top of their voices until irate residents in the above apartments ordered them to shut up. Lucian had a feeling his friend Jack and his other friend Allen Ginsberg would get along well, so he decided to bring them together. He invited Allen to come to Edie and Joan's apartment. When Allen arrived, Jack was sitting at the table, eating a mid-afternoon breakfast of bacon and eggs and beer. Allen later recalled, quote, I remember being awed by him because I'd never met a big jock who was sensitive and intelligent about poetry. He thought Jack was physically beautiful, and he fell for his small-town vulnerability and Quebecois moodiness. He referred to him as, quote, The football player with a golden heart. The next two members to make Jack's acquaintance were William S. Burroughs, the subject of a previous episode, and Herbert Hunky. Jack immediately took to Bill Burroughs. He lacked his macabre sense of humour, wealth of knowledge, and world experience. Bill introduced Jack to Herbert Hunky, a Times Square junkie, petty thief, and writer. At last, the beats were complete. The volcanic synergy produced by the meeting of these five young men would fuel American prose and poetry for decades to come. Jack Kerouac first heard the term beat from the mouth of Herbert Hunky, who used the word to refer to the state of being, quote, beaten, down and out, to feel the world is against you. Jack is credited with adopting the word to describe his group of friends and the wider, post-war, meaning-seeking youth that made up their generation. Jack Kerouac, Lucien Carr, Allen Ginsberg, Bill Burroughs, and Herbert Hunky spent many sleepless nights together exploring the city's worst neighborhoods to find the best jazz clubs. They'd get drunk on red wine and bebop, then head back to one of their apartments, crack open nasal inhalers, consume the benzedrine inside, 
get really, really buzzed, have sex with their girlfriends, and sometimes each other, and work themselves up into passionate discussions about literature and creativity. The ringleader of the group, Lucian, had a way of effortlessly attracting admirers wherever he went. One of them was David Kemmerer, an older, whiskered, red-headed man from his hometown, whose sexual obsession with Lucian had grown so overbearing it was ruining Lucian's life. One night in August 1944, Jack and Lucian were drinking at their usual bar, The West End, located on Broadway in the Upper West Side. Just after midnight, Jack finished his last drink, bid Lucian goodbye, and headed out into the hot summer night. On the way back to Edie's apartment, he bumped into Camera, who asked after Lucian. Jack directed him to the West End bar, then went a separate way. It was the last time he'd see Camera alive. Camera caught up with Lucian, and the two went for a stroll in the nearby Riverside Park. According to Lucian, Camera made an overt sexual advance and when Lucian rejected him, a scuffle ensued. Realising he was no match for the much larger, stronger man, Lucian panicked and grabbed for the Boy Scout knife he carried around in his pocket. He stabbed Camera twice in the chest, then, working frantically in the darkness, and unsure if he'd been seen, Lucian filled the pockets of Camera's clothes with rocks, bound his hands and feet with shoelaces, and dumped his body in the Hudson River. An autopsy later revealed Camera's cause of death was drowning. Lucian was 19 at the time. Camera was only 31. At dawn, Lucian snuck into Edie and Joan's apartment and awoke Jack to tell him what had happened. He still had the murder weapon, as well as Camera's glasses. Jack went with him to dispose of both items. Jack covered for his friend while Lucian dropped the knife down a drain and buried the glasses in a park. Perhaps trying to take their mind off the event, the boys then caught a movie and visited the Museum of Modern Art. Jack's show of loyalty would later come back to bite him. After Lucian turned himself into police, Jack was charged as an accessory and thrown in jail. His father refused to pay his bail. His girlfriend's parents offered to pay instead, but on one condition. Jack must marry Edie. So, just a week after the murder, the 22-year-old lovers exchanged vows at City Hall. One of the reasons Leo Kerouac might have refused to bail out his son was because he disagreed with Jack's literary ambitions and distrusted his friends, namely Burroughs and Ginsburg. Leo had recently been diagnosed with stomach cancer. He clung to hope that he'd live long enough to see Jack abandon his bad-influenced friends and silly artistic fancies to take up a more respectable path in life. This didn't happen. One Friday afternoon in 1946, Jack was visiting his father, and the two of them were in the kitchen, arguing over how to make a proper cup of coffee, when Leo slumped forward in his chair. At first, Jack assumed he was asleep but Leo never woke up. In 1950, 28-year-old Jack published his first book thanks to Allen Ginsberg's connections to the publishing industry. It was called The Town and the City, and though reviews were favourable, it didn't sell well, and some critics dismissed it as a derivative take on Thomas Wolfe. It was a conventional novel, and Jack was dissatisfied with the conventional result. If Jack wanted to make a mark on the world, 
He needed to do something different. He needed to use his own voice and write about something unique to his experiences, something he knew intimately. He went back to the notes and ideas he'd written down over the years, in small notebooks he always carried in his pockets, and realised he already had the makings of a great novel. He decided he would write about himself and his friends as Beat characters part of the Beat generation, burned out hipsters with the light of life in their eyes. These were the people Jack wanted to write about. This is what lit a fire in Jack's belly, and he already had the perfect muse a man named Neil Cassidy. Jack all but forgot about Lucian Carr when he met Neil Cassidy in 1947. Legend has it, Neil was staying with a friend of Jack's, and Jack was up late in his Harlem apartment working on the town and the city when Neil burst into the room, completely naked and probably drunk or high, and introduced himself. Whether or not this is true, the fact remains Jack and Neil grew very close very quickly like a pair of long-lost brothers. Jack considered Neil a more extroverted, electric version of himself, and he felt Neil embodied the authentic American spirit in a post-war time of overbearing conformity. Jack was attracted to Neil's physical beauty as well as his tremendous energy and addictive enthusiasm for life. After a few months spent getting to know one another and with Jack newly single since Edie annulled their marriage, the pair of new friends set off to explore the country. They embarked on a series of cross-country trips around America and down to Mexico. Their travels were filled with adventures that Jack later drew on to write his greatest novel, On the Road. He cast Neil as the free-spirited Dean Moriarty and himself as Sal Paradise in a tale of rambling, autobiographical prose. Most of their travels were spent together but whenever Neil and Jack split up on separate excursions, they wrote to each other constantly, and it was Neil's style of writing in his letters to Jack that planted the seeds of the groundbreaking style Jack would later use to write on the road. This period was probably the happiest in Jack's life. He had no responsibilities, no constraints. It was just himself and his best mate, the books he loved to read, the journals in which he wrote, and the open road. On the Road is commonly misinterpreted as nothing but a hedonistic tale about two young men out for a good time, drinking, taking drugs, and fucking their way across America. But Jack was still hardcore religious, and he likens the story to more of a spiritual journey than a pleasure-seeking one. He stated, quote, On the Road was really a story about two Catholic buddies roaming the country in search of God, and we found him. I found him in the sky in Market Street, San Francisco, and Dean had God sweating out of his forehead all the way. The legend of how on the road was written is almost as famous as the book itself. In the spring of 1951, for 20 days straight, Jack sat himself in front of the typewriter and wrote the final draft on a 120 foot long continuous scroll of paper stuck together by tape. The purpose of this continuous scroll was so his creative flow wouldn't be interrupted by the need to reload paper. Jack's second wife, Joan Haverty, whom he married the previous year, two weeks after they first met, supplied him with coffee, benzodrine, cigarettes, and split pea soup to keep him working. Jack's scroll, which is over 36 metres long, has been exhibited numerous times around the world, 
This year, 2020, it's being shown at an exhibition in Japan. Though Jack penned the entire 120,000-word novel in a frenzied 20 days, it was a long, slow, frustrated slog to see it published. Viking Press finally agreed to publish On the Road in 1957, on the condition that Jack make heavy revisions. He was so worn down by six years of back-and-forth arguments with editors that Jack gave in. He purged some of the more explicit content, and removed all traces of potentially libelous material by changing character names. The six years between On the Road's first draft and its publication was Jack's most prolific period as a writer. In that time, he wrote more than half a dozen other manuscripts, such as The Subterraneans, Dr. Sachs, Maggie Cassidy, Desolation Angels, and The Dharma Bums. His personal life was less successful. Shortly after they divorced, Joan Haverty gave birth in 1952 to Jack's only child, a girl named Jan. Jack refused to acknowledge Jan was his real daughter until a blood test confirmed it nine years later. He met Jan for the first time when she was 10, and by then, there was no salvaging the relationship. They remained strangers until Jack's death. During the late 50s, and while waiting for On the Road to see the light of day, Jack kept himself busy with intermittent jobs and frequent trips across America and Mexico. He worked a seasonal appointment as a fire lookout in a national forest in the state of Washington, and took on a job as a brakeman for the Southern Pacific Railroad in California. He carried his notebooks everywhere he went, and continued writing and submitting work to publishers, despite the constant rejection letters. He had a brief flirtation with Buddhism, and carried on affairs with different women including a beautiful and mysterious black beatnik woman named Arlene Lee, on whom the character Mardu Fox in The Subterraneans would be based. Between 1955 and 56, Jack settled for a while in a charming southern town called Rocky Mount, North Carolina, where he lived with his elderly mother, his sister Nin, and his sister's husband Paul in a little blue cottage. The fact he was still financially reliant on his sister and mother while in his 30s might have pushed him to make the revisions to On the Road so he could finally see it published. When the book went to print and Jack received his advance payment, he moved to a small tin-roofed weatherboard bungalow in Orlando, Florida, which you can still go visit today if you're in the area. It was while living in Orlando that On the Road was published to critical acclaim in September 1957. On the evening of September 5th, Jack picked up a copy of the New York Times and read Gilbert Milstein's glowing review, which stated, quote, On the road is the most beautifully executed, the clearest and most important utterance yet made by the generation Kerouac himself named years ago as Beat. 35-year-old Jack became an overnight celebrity and thus began a period in his life that was both a dream and a nightmare. Jack was uncomfortable with fame. Though an extrovert and an entertainer around his friends and within his writing, he was painfully shy in public and often became ill at the thought of appearing on a TV segment or at a book signing party. He relied on alcohol to get through each social situation, but what began as bottled courage before facing an audience turned into full-blown alcoholism, especially when he realized his public image 
had snowballed out of his control and into a monster of mythological proportions. The media was fascinated with the unconventional, polarizing beatnik lifestyle. On the one hand, romanticizing it, while on the other hand, mocking and denouncing it. These are the beatniks, the defiant young, coming from every walk of life, wrought with suppressed emotions and mocking the everyday course of modern society, intent on striking back as they wage a battle for their right to be heard. They homed in on Jack and turned him into a representative for an entire culture he felt he had nothing to do with, dubbing him King of the Beats and Father of the Hippies, terms he grew to despise. He became a sort of literary equivalent of James Dean, with the New York publishing industry establishing him as a rebel in the same way the LA film industry had done with James Dean. And just because people were familiar with Jack's name and face, they assumed they knew who he was as a person and what he stood for, without having met him or read his books. Jack found he was being recognised on the streets and in bars, and often got into brawls with men who'd pick fights just because he was a celebrity. One night, Jack and his friend were bar hopping around Greenwich Village when they got into an argument with another patron, a stranger who accused Jack of insulting him. When Jack and his friend left the bar, the stranger and two accomplices surrounded them, and one man threw Jack to the ground and beat his head against the curb so bad he had to go to hospital. The upside of fame was that Jack could now publish the manuscripts that had previously been rejected, pay off his debts, and create financial security for himself. But he still wasn't being taken seriously as a writer, and after On the Road, Jack never truly got his compass back on North. His alcoholism worsened when his sister Nin died in 1964 from a heart attack at 45. Then, his mother Gabrielle suffered a paralyzing stroke and moved in with Jack and his third wife, Stella Sampus, so they could care for her. The three of them lived together in a little red brick house in St. Petersburg, Florida. In his final years, Jack, overweight and prematurely aged, withdrew into a bitter, reclusive, self-contained universe filled with television and alcohol. He managed to publish one last book, a semi-autobiographical novel called The Vanity of Deleuze, that detailed his high school and university experiences. On October 20, 1969, at 11 o'clock in the morning, Jack was sitting in his favorite chair with the shades drawn, drinking whiskey and malt liquor when he suddenly felt ill. He disappeared into the bathroom. His wife Stella broke in and found him on his knees, vomiting blood. An ambulance took him to hospital where doctors diagnosed him with massive abdominal hemorrhaging, likely caused by longtime alcohol abuse and addiction to amphetamines. He was rushed into surgery, and despite 26 blood transfusions, Jack Kerouac died at 5 o'clock the following morning. He was only 47 years old. A funeral was held three days later in his hometown of Lowell, Massachusetts. Allen Ginsberg was one of the pallbearers. Neil Cassidy might have attended too, if he hadn't died at age 41 the previous year in Mexico under mysterious circumstances. The following excerpt comes from chapter one of On the Road. The narrator, Sal Paradise, clearly based on Jack, goes for a night out on the town with his best buddy, Dean Moriarty, based on Neil Cassidy. 
He introduces Dean to another one of his friends, Carlo Marx, and the two hit it off. Carlo was based on Allen Ginsberg. That was the night Dean met Carlo Marx. A tremendous thing happened when Dean met Carlo Marx. Two keen minds that they are, they took to each other at the drop of a hat. Two piercing eyes glanced into two piercing eyes. The holy con man with the shining mind and the sorrowful, poetic con man with the dark mind that is Carlo Marx. From that moment on, I saw very little of Dean, and I was a little sorry too. Their energies met head on. I was a lout compared. I couldn't keep up with them. The whole mad swirl of everything that was to come began then. It would mix up all my friends and all I had left of my family in a big dust cloud over the American night. Carlo told him of Old Bull Lee, Elma Hassel, Jane, Lee in Texas growing weed, Hassel on Rikers Island, Jane wandering on Times Square in a benzedrine hallucination with her baby girl in her arms and ending up in Bellevue. And Dean told Carlo of unknown people in the West, like Tommy Snark, the club-footed pool hall rotation shark and card player and queer saint. He told him of Roy Johnson, Big Ed Dunkel, his boyhood buddies, his street buddies, his innumerable girls and sex parties and pornographic pictures, his heroes, heroines, adventures. They rushed down the street together, digging everything in the early way they had, which later became so much sadder and perceptive and blank. But then they danced down the streets like dingle doties, and I shambled after, as I've been doing all my life, after people who interest me, because the only people for me are the mad ones. The ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, burn, burn. Like fabulous yellow Roman candles exploding like spiders across the stars. Philip Kindred Dick was born a twin on December 16, 1928, in Chicago, Illinois. He and his sister Jane were born at home, six weeks premature, and at the time were on record as among the smallest babies to survive birth. The parents were Joseph Edgar Dick and Dorothy Kindred. Both Edgar and Dorothy worked for the United States Department of Agriculture, or USDA, until Dorothy gave up work to become a full-time mother, leaving Edgar to take over the reins as sole breadwinner. Edgar was a Bachelor of Science graduate from Georgetown University and fully equipped to provide for his family. Around the time of the twins' birth, he was promoted to Principal Scientific Aid for the USDA. But tragedy lay in wait for the couple, just beyond the initial joy of new parenthood. For their first 40 days, Philip and Jane struggled to survive. They were constantly sick and unable to feed, meaning they lost weight instead of gaining it. Finally, after a home visit nurse deemed the babies critically ill, Philip and Jane were rushed to the hospital. But Jane was dead on arrival. She weighed in at a mere two and a quarter pounds, or one kilogram. Philip was only slightly bigger, but the extra weight may have been what saved him. Although too young to remember, the loss of his twin would cast a shadow over the rest of Philip's life. As we will see, Jane's death had a huge impact on him and, by his own admission, literally shaped who he became 
and therefore is the key to understanding him. Much of his work reveals his obsession with the concept of multiple realities. He loved to envision a reality in which Jane might have lived, perhaps instead of himself, and wondered what kind of person she would have turned out to be. Jane Kindred Dick was buried in what's known as a companion plot at Fort Morgan, Colorado. Acting as a creepy reminder of his own mortality, the plot beside Jane was left vacant, and Philip's name was carved into the gravestone beside hers. Philip spent the rest of his life knowing the gravestone was there waiting for him. Philip could never decide who to hold accountable for Jane's death. He swung between blaming his mother for being negligent and not feeding Jane enough, and feeling guilty himself for possibly hogging all of his mother's milk. The relationship between mother and son wasn't off to a good start. In 1929, Edgar got promoted to marketing specialist for the USDA, a position that required the Dicks to move to Northern California. They moved to different locations around San Francisco Bay before settling in Berkeley, a spirited city that would soon be connected to San Francisco by the Golden Gate Bridge, and in a few decades time, become world-renowned as a focal point of the hippie movement that spilled across the bay from San Francisco. Free-thinking and liberal, Dorothy absolutely loved Berkeley, so when Edgar accepted another job as a statistician for the National Recovery Administration located in Reno, Nevada, Dorothy refused to go, and the couple divorced. Dorothy and Philip moved in with Dorothy's mother, and Edgar headed northeast to Reno. This was 1933, Philip was five, and too young to understand why his father left. Here was yet another great loss in his young life, and though Edgar made efforts to return to California to see his son frequently, Philip couldn't help but feel abandoned by a man he very much admired. During his visits, Edgar regaled his son with stories from his time served in World War I, and once brought along his gas mask to show Philip. The mask scared the boy, and Edgar didn't bring it again. When Philip went through a cowboy phase, Edgar dressed him up in a cowboy costume and took him out to visit his rancher friends. On one such trip to the country, Philip came rushing into the ranch house from outside where he'd been playing to interrupt the adults and warn about a, quote, jingle snake on the front porch. The adults dismissed him at first, unsure what he was talking about, but Philip insisted dragging them by the hand to the porch to reveal that what he'd referred to as a jingle snake was actually a huge rattlesnake, the biggest ever killed in the area at the time. After two years spent bouncing back and forth between his divorced parents, a bitter custody battle broke out and Dorothy won. She took Philip to live with her in Washington, where she'd snagged herself a job at the Federal Children's Bureau after having his home split down the middle and uprooted. It comes as no surprise that young Philip was psychologically frail. By age six, he had already seen his first psychologist and continued to see doctors throughout his schooling due to panic attacks, agoraphobia, claustrophobia, and a severe form of vertigo that made him feel as if the ground beneath his feet was constantly tilting. Then there were the physical ailments, Though he was growing up to be a tall and robust boy, his anxieties caused eczema, heart rate abnormalities, and asthma. The latter was treated with amphetamines. He missed a great deal of school, which didn't bother him too much. Philip was rather bored with schoolwork, 
and much preferred creating his own projects, such as a comical newspaper he wrote, edited, and published, called The Daily Dick. Dorothy, a single working mother, struggled to pay bills and juggle parenting and her career. In 1938, when Philip was nine, she got a job at the US Forestry Department and moved herself and Philip back to Berkeley. The idea was to live closer to Dorothy's mother, who would help raise young Philip. This meant they were also back closer to Edgar, Philip's father. But Edgar's visits had ground to a halt after his ex-wife and son's relocation to Washington. Washington was too far from Reno, and Edgar was too much of a workaholic to take time off. By the time Dorothy and Philip returned to California some four years later, Edgar had all but faded into memory. He had moved to Pasadena, remarried and started a new family. He had no reason to resurrect custody issues with Dorothy. By age 12, and like any typical boy, Philip had developed a fascination with science. He planned to be a paleontologist. One day, he was browsing a convenience store, looking for a non-fiction science magazine, when he came across a magazine called Stirring Science Stories. It turned out to be a compilation of sci-fi short stories about time and space travel, parallel worlds, artificial intelligence, aliens, dystopian governments, and technologies that didn't yet exist. Philip was blown away. After this, he consumed every sci-fi magazine he could get his hands on, then moved onto pulp paperbacks, and finally the classics, like H.G. Wells and Jules Verne. Between books, he dabbled in writing his own sci-fi stories, some of which ended up in the young author's page of the local newspaper, the Berkeley Gazette. Philip had a seemingly easy time making friends at middle school. He chose his friends carefully, then, after forming a solid circle, naturally assumed the leader position. The friends were attracted to Philip's complicated mix of awkward intellectual and suave prankster. They also loved his wild imagination. In 1944, Philip began to attend Berkeley High School. It is a strange coincidence that he was in the same grade as Ursula Le Guin, a fellow future sci-fi author. However, Ursula didn't know who he was, and later, she couldn't remember him. In fact, few students got to know Philip. Somewhere during the transition from middle school to high school, Philip's old psychological disturbances resurfaced. He had social anxiety, so mostly kept to himself, and he struggled to adapt to the rigid academic structure. Though intelligent, exams sent him into a panic, and his grades were poor. One of his English teachers recalled that Phil's typical academic assignments tended to disappoint, but the stories he handed in as part of the creative component of the curriculum were extraordinary. One story was so imaginative and entertaining that she encouraged him to send it to a local literary magazine. Phil dropped out of school in his senior year and finished his studies with the help of a home tutor. For a teenager with social anxiety, it's surprising that Philip managed to hold down two customer-facing jobs, working as a sales clerk at an electronics shop, as well as a record store on Berkeley's famous Telegraph Avenue. He thrived in Berkeley's bohemian community and found he had no trouble discussing art, music, and culture with his colleagues and customers. He started to come out of his shell. He was clean-shaven, active, and you might say, rather hip. In the photographs from this period, 
Philip looks like a young Paul Giamatti. He formed a whole new group of friends and thanks to a staff discount at the record store, built up an impressive personal collection of vinyl alongside his home library of sci-fi books. The job at the electronics store gave Philip more than work experience. In 1948, aged 19, he supposedly lost his virginity to a woman named Jeanette Marlin in the store's basement storage closet. Later, Philip drew on this experience as inspiration in one of his novels called Dr. Blood Money, wherein a couple of TV store employees take refuge in a basement storage closet during a nuclear strike. The encounter with Jeanette established, much to Philip's and his mother's relief, he wasn't a homosexual. But being inexperienced and unfamiliar with sex, Philip naively assumed he'd gotten Jeanette pregnant off this one encounter. And the only decent thing to do was ask her to marry him. Just a heads up, this marriage was the first of five. Jeanette was by far the most mysterious of all five of Philip's wives. Very little is known about her, other than the fact she was likely older than Philip by a couple of years, and she had a brother named Wendell to whom she was very close. Philip and Wendell didn't get on and Wendell was always there to take his sister's side whenever the newlyweds fought. After just seven months, and after it was very clear Jeanette wasn't in fact pregnant to Philip, the couple divorced. The story goes that during a particularly dramatic argument, either Jeanette or Wendell threatened to destroy Philip's beloved record collection. After that, he felt he couldn't trust either of them around his possessions anymore. He packed his things and moved to an attic apartment in downtown Berkeley. Counted among Philip's new bohemian friends who he met while working at the record store were the emerging poets Robert Duncan and Jack Spicer. Under their influence, Philip took a break from reading the sci-fi pulp and turned his interest to mainstream and classical literature, such as Proust, Balzac, Kafka, Ezra Pound and Scott Fitzgerald. While on this intellectual role, he decided to give college a crack and enrolled at the University of California in the fall of 1949. He planned to major in philosophy and take classes in history and zoology as well, but lasted only a few months. He dropped out of the University of California after refusing to participate in the ROTC training that was, at the time, a mandatory part of the college curriculum. ROTC stands for Reserve Officers Training Corps. During one of the drills, Philip recalled field stripping an M1 rifle and then being the only one in his class who couldn't put the rifle back together, no matter how hard he tried. For a young man like Philip, who'd never been particularly athletic or tolerant of authority figures, the ROTC training was torturous. He was all the more resentful of it after learning a failing ROTC grade would affect his grade point average, even though it had nothing to do with his college major. One positive thing came from the university. Philip met and quickly married his second wife, Cleo Apostolides, who was also a student at UC Berkeley. She was three years younger than him, with beautiful dark shoulder length curls and dark eyes. Cleo was a wonderful match for Phil, when he disclosed he wanted to be a writer, she set out to do all she could to help him achieve the dream. With Cleo's support, Philip, for the first time, 
began to write with a serious eye to selling his work. Cleo acted as a sounding board for Philip's ideas and a copy editor for his drafts. And though Philip was too reclusive to join any sort of writer group, Cleo joined quite a well-known one in downtown Berkeley and attended in her husband's place, taking along both his and her short stories to get feedback and test audience reactions. Her dedication was rather astonishing given that she was still going to college and working to support them both at the same time. In the age of the internet, it's difficult to fully understand just how much hard work went into the simple task of submitting stories to magazines back in the mid-20th century. After typing up the final manuscript of a story, Philip or Cleo would stuff it into a stamped manila envelope, march down to the post office, and mail it off to any magazine that had shown even the remotest interest in sci-fi fiction or fantasy. When a short story was rejected, as many of Philip's were in the beginning, the typed manuscript would be returned to the sender, and Philip or Cleo would start the process again, packing the manuscript into a fresh envelope and sending it off to the next prospective publisher. If any of the pages of a manuscript got bent in the previous postage trip, Cleo used a clothes iron to smooth out the pages. She also kept a detailed record of what had been sent and where, so as to avoid sending a story back to a magazine that had already rejected it. And boy, were there rejections. One day, the couple opened their front door to find 17 rejected manuscripts piled up on their front porch, and more stuffed into their tiny mailbox. Among the pile of rejections, was the short story called The Minority Report. To his credit, the constant rejections didn't deter Phil. He continued to pump out stories as fast as his typewriter allowed. Cleo didn't give up on him either. She forbade him to quit his dream and get a steady day job, even when they were down to their last dollar. I'm not exaggerating when I say Phil and Cleo were poor with a capital P. During one particularly tough stretch, they lived off canned horse meat sold as dog food because it was all they could afford. After several years slogging away and towing the poverty line, 23-year-old Philip finally broke through. A magazine called Fantasy and Science Fiction bought a short story he'd written called Rogue, R-O-O-G, about a neighborhood dog named Boris that misperceives the garbage men as evil shape-shifting aliens that are stealing his family's property. The dog refers to the garbage men as Rugs and attempts to alert his owners to their presence by barking Rug, Rug. The excitement from the sale of Rug soon wore off once Philip received his measly paycheck. The amount would only support the couple for a month. The race was on again to write and publish another piece. Driven by necessity, Philip began to write at an alarming rate, completing a short story or novella every two weeks. He hoped the more he wrote, the better his chances were at publishing. The method seemed to work. At one point, Philip had seven of his short stories published in the space of one month. His labor was finally bearing fruit. The success of Rug and similar works landed Phil a literary agent who encouraged him to channel his energies into writing a novel. The agent said, quote, There's no money in short stories. The real money is in novels. Philip obediently set to writing a longer piece, and in 1955, 
aged 27, Phil published his debut novel, Solar Lottery. The book takes place in what will become the prototypical Dickian world, an illegal totalitarian state where positions of public power are decided by a sophisticated lottery. The enviable top spot is that of the Quizmaster, who rules the solar system, but must also fend off constant and legally sanctioned assassination attempts. For this reason, the same Quizmaster never survives being in power for long. By the late 1950s, Berkeley had begun to emerge as a mecca of the counterculture and the politically left-wing ideas of Marxism and communism. The college city was racked with student demonstrations and riots. The judges in their chambers give official orders now to remove the demonstrators from City Hall. When an attempt is made to carry out the order, the crowd responds by throwing shoes and jostling the police officers. When one officer warns that fire hoses will have to be used if the crowd is not dispersed, the demonstrators become more and more unruly. Though Philip kept his distance from the more radical political groups, he and his wife Cleo were members of a communist student club. This association, paired with Philip's expanding body of subversive stories, landed Mr. and Mrs. Dick squarely on the FBI's radar. This was the McCarthy era, a period of American history marked by an aggressive campaign spearheaded by Senator Joseph McCarthy in an effort to expose alleged communists who were considered at the time traitors to the American way of life. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Philip and Cleo received several visits from a pair of FBI agents investigating a radical rally held recently on the University of California campus. They questioned the Dicks about their political orientation and asked them if they'd be open to travelling to the University of Mexico to spy on leftist students. Philip and Cleo declined. At first, the sight of the agents in their living room, wearing dark suits and grey fedoras and wielding tape recorders, terrified the Dicks. However, the intimidation effects were significantly lessened when one of the agents, George Scruggs, turned out to be a very nice man. He took on an almost fatherly role, befriending Philip and even teaching him how to drive. Nothing ever came of the FBI investigation, except that Philip drew on the experience to use as inspiration in future writings. In 1958, the Dicks yearned for a change of scenery. They moved north from the radical urban centre of Berkeley to Point Reyes Station, a tiny dairy town in western Marin County. By then, Philip was a writer of modest success. The plan was for him to continue to write, while Cleo continued commuting back to Berkeley several times a week to work and supplement the income. A few days after their arrival, word got around that a literary type and his wife had come to live in Point Reyes. Anne Rubenstein, a neighbour, visited the Dicks to welcome them to town. She was curious to meet this writer because her late husband had been a writer too, a poet named Richard Rubenstein. When he was alive, Rubenstein had also worked as an editor on a New York literary magazine that first published Allen Ginsberg and other writers Philip admired. When Philip learned of this fact, he became just as curious about Anne. She was an intellectual with an acerbic wit. 
Physically, she was Cleo's opposite. She had blonde hair and blue eyes and wore cat eye spectacles. And unlike Cleo, who didn't want children, Anne already had three daughters. There was an instant connection between Philip and Anne, and next thing they knew, they'd fallen into an affair. Philip asked Cleo for a divorce and moved into Anne's house. She would be his third wife. Less than a year into their marriage, Anne gave birth to a daughter named Laura. This was Philip's first child. In the first years of his marriage to Anne, Philip temporarily abandoned science fiction to concentrate on writing more mainstream pieces. He hoped that a move away from sci-fi would make the literary community take him more seriously. He also thought it helped that he was now with a woman who had once been married to a highly respected literary figure. He thought of Anne as some kind of literary muse, and if she held any kind of magic or luck, it would rub off on him. And it seems it did. Philip wrote a whole series of mainstream novels while living with Anne, intending to please her, though none were published at the time. These included Time Out of Joint, Confessions of a Crap Artist, and A Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly Alike. The man had a talent for titles. The book that did make it to bookstores was The Man in the High Castle. High Castle, possibly Philip's most famous work, was published in 1962. It is a story set in an alternate historical timeline wherein the Germans won World War II by nuking Washington and forcing an Allied surrender. In the aftermath, the US is divided between the Japanese, who occupy the western half of the continent, and the Germans, who stake a claim to the East. The novel earned Philip a Hugo Award the following year, an award presented annually to sci-fi and fantasy stories. He decided to officially return to sci-fi, the only genre that so far appreciated and recognised his efforts. Philip's marriage to Anne might have been good for his development as a writer, but it wasn't so great for his health. He secretly wolfed down increasingly massive doses of amphetamines to fuel the frantic pace of his writing. He felt powerful and productive when high on speed and could pump out as many as 60 pages a day. But it drew him into an exhausting and harmful cycle. Anne ran a rather successful jewellery making business from home. During the day, Philip would help Anne make jewellery, then he'd stay up all night writing. He'd charge on, working non-stop for about a week, before crashing and sleeping up to 36 hours straight. Then he'd wake up and start the cycle again. Some of the scariest side effects of amphetamine abuse include edginess and paranoia. Philip and Anne's marriage began to fall apart. They had dreadful, violent fights, slamming each other around, smashing objects and throwing furniture. The children would run and hide in terror. At one point in 1963, during a particularly ferocious argument they were having while driving, Philip pulled the car off the road and parked it at the brink of a cliff. He threatened to throw Anne off the edge. The couple knew they triggered each other and decided to seek professional help. They visited a psychiatrist for marriage counselling, but the plan backfired for Anne. Philip and the psychiatrist got on well, and Philip convinced the doctor that his wife was trying to kill him. He spun stories about Anne trying to hit him with her car, stab him, poison him, spend away their savings. 
The psychiatrist believed the stories and arranged to have Anne committed to a mental hospital. She was locked up for several weeks. Anne's psychiatric commitment marked the end of the marriage. Philip filed for divorce in 1964, and once the case was finalised, he moved to Oakland to live with a new woman named Grania Davis, who had been writing him flirtatious fan letters. It was only after Philip left and Anne received the pharmacy bill in the mail that Anne discovered just how serious her ex-husband's drug addiction had been. In Oakland, it didn't take long for Philip to turn his new relationship with Grania into a death trip. Soon after the move, and still popping speed pills like they were Tic Tacs, Philip attempted suicide by running his Volkswagen Beetle off the road. Grania, his passenger, escaped unscathed, but Philip was seriously injured and spent several months in a full body cast. His immobility, mix of medications and tumultuous personal life brought on a deep depression. This was probably the lowest point in Philip's life so far. He made remarks to family and friends that he was such a failure, he'd even failed at suicide. He spoke about feeling, quote, spiritually dead, and referred to himself as a, quote, human corpse. He continued to have persecutory delusions about Anne, believing that his ex-wife had tapped the phones in his home and was monitoring his movements so she could eventually trap and kill him. He went so far as to buy a pistol to defend himself. One day, when Anne tried to visit him with their daughter in Oakland, he waved the gun at her and scared her away. Grania Davis quickly grew tired of his erratic and dangerous behaviour and brought the five-month-long relationship to an end. In 1966, the woman of the hour was Nancy Hackett, and she was to become wife number four. Nancy was a 21-year-old, friendly but fragile individual who had recently discharged from a mental hospital where she'd undergone treatment for schizophrenia. She had had a very difficult upbringing, and her issues were serious. 38-year-old Philip seemed rather sane beside her, and perhaps felt he could take care of her. They married and moved to San Rafael, a city 30 minutes north of San Francisco, where Nancy gave birth to a girl they named Isold. Unfortunately, becoming a father for the second time didn't set Philip on the straight and narrow path. He still felt an intense compulsion to write, and drugs provided an irresistible boost to his writing. He purchased speed from drug dealers and double-dipped with doctors. This meant seeing several doctors at once and manipulating them into providing scripts by feigning symptoms of various illnesses. Nancy claimed that Philip was taking up to 70 pills a day, including Valium, tranquilizers, antipsychotic medications, and an ever-expanding regimen of amphetamines. Friends recall that his refrigerator was stocked full with bottles of pills, and Philip gulped them by the handful and washed them down with milk. With chemical assistance, he'd write non-stop for days on end, immersing himself so deeply in his stories that he'd lose track of time and emerge from his office unwashed, unshaven and completely disoriented. It was a dangerous method, but it seemed to work. He wrote three great novels almost back to back. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? A Maze of Death? 
and Ubik. The latter was selected by Time magazine as part of their list of 100 greatest novels since 1923. The Time reviewer described Ubik as a, quote, Unsettling existential horror story, a nightmare you'll never be sure you've woken up from. Philip was producing a great amount of work, but he still wasn't able to live comfortably off book sales. He and Nancy struggled to make ends meet, but didn't seem too concerned about any kind of future, even with their baby girl in the picture. Theirs wasn't really a relationship between two adults. They lived chaotically, like a pair of young teenagers, taking drugs, avoiding responsibility, scrounging together money to buy food and pay the occasional bill. One day, Philip was in Trader Joe's, a grocery store, and he got to talking to the checkout clerk, who revealed his annual salary. Phil's jaw dropped. The checkout clerk made more money than he did a year. The incident hit Phil hard, like a punch to the stomach. He felt ripped off. He was a hard-working published author, a famous figure in the sci-fi community, yet he couldn't even afford to pay the bills. He realized he was suffering for an art that would likely never translate to financial security. And yet, he couldn't imagine living and making money any other way. He needed to write like he needed to breathe. Phil and Nancy's marriage broke down in 1971. She left him for a member of the Black Panthers, taking their daughter with her and leaving Phil alone in an empty house to hit rock bottom. He was devastated and not thinking right. In an effort to feel less lonely, he opened his home to a motley cast of transients and drug addicts and dealers who used his place as a crash pad. He found the presence of the young delinquents comforting, though they turned his house into a pigsty. He stopped writing during this period and spent all his time taking drugs and entertaining the strangers drifting through his home. This home, a little suburban tract house on Hacienda Way with a dead garden out front, was witness to some of Philip's lowest moments. In 1971, at the height of his paranoia, Philip's house was broken into and burglarized. According to Phil, there was evidence that explosives had been used to break into his locked filing cabinet, where he kept his precious manuscripts. Phil was so upset and obsessed about the event that he made it a point of focus in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine and he bought a pistol for protection and prowled the house at night, peering through the blinds and contacting the police with theories about who the robbers might have been. He accused everyone, from the CIA to the KGB, the right wing and the left wing, religious extremists, the Black Panthers, extraterrestrials, and the very police whom he had reported the crime to. No culprit was found because the burglar had been Phil himself. That's right, he'd burglarized his own home. He just couldn't remember doing it. 1972 saw Philip invited as the guest of honor to the Vancouver Science Fiction Convention. With the Vietnam War raging on, he was happy for an excuse to flee America for a while, but the trip was a disaster. He bounced into another whirlwind affair with a woman he met at the convention, and that ended in heartbreak, and he was kicked out of his accommodation on account of his erratic behavior. He rented his own apartment, but had no friends in the city and grew lonely very quickly. He attempted suicide, 
overdosing on a sedative, potassium bromide. But he changed his mind at the last minute and called for an ambulance. While waiting for the medics to arrive, he called a suicide hotline. The counsellor he spoke to suggested Phil try rehab. After recovering from his overdose, Phil checked himself into a notorious tough love drug rehab facility that usually treated heroin addicts. Several weeks later, he discharged and returned to California. Over the next year, his writing was put on the back burner while he focused on his recovery. The light at the end of the dark tunnel was his fifth and final marriage to Tessa Busby. He met her at a 4th of July party and described her as the kindest woman he'd ever come across. Philip was 45. Tessa was only 18. They had a baby together named Christopher, Philip's first son. And just as in Phil's previous relationships, they lived in a kind of romantic, hand-to-mouth bohemian poverty. Gradually, Philip returned to his writing. He wrote and published Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said, in 1974, a story about a genetically enhanced pop star who wakes up in a world wherein he has never existed. Phil then followed that up with A Scanner Darkly, a story about an undercover narcotics agent that gets hooked on drugs and doesn't realise he is narking on himself. Philip claimed it was one of the toughest novels he wrote. It was the first time he wrote while sober, and because it drew on his experiences from the Drifter House and Rehab Stint, it required him to dredge up some unpleasant and traumatic memories from the darkest periods of his life. Many a morning, Tessa would wake to find Philip sobbing over his typewriter after a night spent working on a scanner darkly. Philip was off the hallucinogenics and off the amphetamines by the mid-70s, yet one of the freakiest, most mind-bending moments of Philip's life was about to occur. In February 1974, Phil was housebound and recovering from dental surgery when a girl from the local drugstore came to his door to deliver pain medication. She was wearing a locket on a necklace and the sun reflected off the locket and dazzled Phil's eyes. He believed afterwards he had experienced a bewildering, meaningful revelation. One of the revelations that came to him was that he was still living in the period during the Roman Empire and he was part of a resistance movement. And this memory had laid dormant in him all his life until the beam of light awakened him to it. The event inspired his Vallis trilogy of books. Vallis being an acronym for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. Philip's on-record discussions about his cosmic mind invasion and subsequent publication of Vallis led to the widespread assumption he had gone mad. Others wondered if Philip was simply being playful with his own mental illness. His fans considered him a genius, a chosen one, who might have actually received a vision or a message from a higher power, perhaps even God himself. In any case, Philip became obsessed with finding an explanation for this event. His obsession, coupled with his mood swings, led to the dissolution of his marriage to Tessa. His fifth divorce was finalised in the lead-up to his 50th birthday. In February 1982, after completing an interview, Philip contacted his therapist to complain of failing eyesight. He was advised to go straight to the hospital, but did not. The following day, he was found unconscious on the floor of his Santa Ana home. He had suffered a stroke 
and would never fully recover. On March 2nd, he was disconnected from life support and died. He was buried next to his twin sister in the same grave that had been waiting for him all his life. A little over three months after Phil died, Blade Runner was released. There was an escape from the off-world colonies two weeks ago. Six replicants, three male, three female. They slaughtered 20... A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants. Manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. What's this? Roy Batty. Probably the leader. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Blade Runner was an adaptation of Phil's book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The film wasn't an instant hit, but rather grew in popularity over time, consequently bringing the name Philip K. Dick to the world stage. Blade Runner has since become a cult classic, and Philip K. Dick has since become one of Hollywood's favourite sources for imaginative stories. Even if you've never read his books, you've almost certainly seen a movie adaptation based on his work. The most famous adaptations, aside from Blade Runner, include Total Recall, released in 1990 starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Minority Report in 2002 starring Tom Cruise, Paycheck in 2003 starring Ben Affleck, A Scanner Darkly in 2006 with Keanu Reeves, The Adjustment Bureau in 2011 starring Matt Damon, and 2017's Blade Runner 2049 with Ryan Gosling. TV adaptations include The Man in the High Castle and Electric Dreams. Whether madman or genius, it's a damn shame Philip K. Dick didn't live long enough to see the impact his imagination would have on the world and see himself become an icon beyond the sci-fi community. The following excerpt comes from Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Jason Taverner, a famous singer, wakes up in a parallel reality where there is no record of his existence, and he has no recollection of how he got there. All his identification cards were gone. Cards that made it possible for him to stay alive. Cards that got him through pole and nat barricades without being shot or thrown into a forced labour camp. I can't live two hours without my ID, he said to himself. I don't even dare walk out of the lobby of this rundown hotel and onto the public sidewalk. They'll assume I'm a student or a teacher escaped from one of the campuses. I'll spend the rest of my life as a slave doing heavy manual labor. I am what they call an unperson. For example, he realized, with all this money I have on me, I can get myself down to Watts and buy phony ID cards, a whole wallet full of them. There must be a hundred little operators scratching away at that from what I've heard, but I never thought I'd be using one of them. Not Jason Tavener, not a public entertainer with an audience of 30 million. Among all this 30 million people, he asked himself, isn't there one who remembers me? Thanks for listening to Hollyword. This episode was written and narrated by me, Key Whiskey. Special thanks to my guest, Jared Doyle, for editing the episode and voicing Jack Kerouac, Philip K. Dick, and any other voices featured throughout. Please visit our website, hollywordpodcast.com, to find show notes, including a list of sources used, and more information. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, well, you're already doing it by listening. But if you're feeling extra generous, 
please rate, review, subscribe, and share. I know you could be listening to a million other podcasts right now, and the fact you're listening to me means more to me than I could adequately express. Join me next time for another dive into the lives of history's greatest storytellers. Good night.